By most objective measures, the COVID pandemic is over. Because of impressively rapid technological innovations, most people are now able to easily manage risks to their health posed by the virus. But not everyone agrees that this means the pandemic is over. Some argue that as long as even a handful of high-risk individuals are threatened by COVID, we should not think it proper to resume normal life. What ideas are responsible for this approach to the ethics of infectious disease? And what attitude does the approach betray toward healthy people and toward the innovations that allow us to preserve and perfect health? What has been the impact of this approach? And by contrast, what is a rational approach to the ethics of infectious disease? Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're going to discuss and answer some of those questions. My name is Ben Baer. I am a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, joining me is Dr. Amish Adolja. Hi, Amish. Hi, thanks for having me. And just so uh, people who haven't seen Dr. Adolja on our channel before uh, can be aware, Dr. Adolja is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. His work is focused on emerging infectious disease, pandemic preparedness, and biosecurity. He actively practices infectious disease, critical care, and emergency medicine in Pittsburgh. So, uh, Amish, you're a physician, you're an expert on pandemic preparedness. You have uh, treated many COVID patients in Pittsburgh over the last few years. But in a recent article that you wrote in the magazine Ario, you expressed agreement with President Biden that by most objective measures, the COVID pandemic is over. But we still have COVID cases. Some expect them to rise again uh, in the winter. And right now in China, something we'll come back to several times today, there's a what appears to be a new outbreak. So by what kind of measures are you claiming that the pandemic is over? And a uh, follow-up question to that is, what kind of definition of pandemic are you relying on in order to make that claim? So to take the second part first, so pandemic, just to break the word apart, means all of the people, meaning of, of infectious disease that's spreading amongst all of the people. And when you take that concept, it doesn't really talk about severity. It doesn't tell you if people are dying. It just tells you people are getting infected. And COVID-19 was a pandemic. But to me, there's gonna there's a transition between a pandemic virus to one that's endemic or in, within the people that's always around. And COVID-19 to me made that transition when we had widespread immunity in the population through vaccines, boosters, and natural infection and some combinations of all of those. And we ceased to see COVID-19 have the ability to crush a hospital. So to me, what that transition phase was keyed on was the inability of COVID-19 to do what it could do in 2020 and in parts of 2021 when it was hellish inside hospitals, when we worried about on a day-to-day -day basis, the ability to care for patients or to have personal protective equipment or where things were, ventilators are being rationed, ICU beds are being rationed. When that lifted because of the tools science and medicine gave us, I think that acute phase of the pandemic dissipated. And now people are, they, they, they have a lot of immunity from all of the above, plus they have access to drugs like Paxlovid, plus we've got home tests. 
and we're not hearing about hospitals being crushed, and people are now able to risk acclimatize themselves to COVID-19 in a way that they do to other respiratory viruses. So to me, when President Biden said that off-the-cuff remark, he was actually correct, even though he got a lot of criticism in my field for saying so. Just to uh, illustrate a little bit more what you're talking about, so you, you, you're someone who has been on the front lines of this pandemic. Can you say any more about just the qualitative experience of what it's like to be in hospitals now compared to what it was like in uh, spring 2020? It's night and day. I can remember during January of, uh, of 2021, uh, when we were really at the height of it, in my, in my experience, when almost every other patient I saw had COVID-19, where there were auxiliary ICUs opened up in Pittsburgh, where we had lotteries for patients to get remdesivir. None of that happens. I don't even basically get consulted on, on many COVID patients now because it's become routine and we don't hear about hospitals unable to operate. It's not as if you're seeing every other patient with COVID. COVID-19 has effectively been shifted to a majority out illness where because of all that immunity, because of drugs like Paxlovid, people aren't getting admitted at the rate that they once did from COVID-19. And that was always the goal of this virus because it's not a virus that can be eradicated or eliminated. Our goal was to shift it to the milder spectrum of illness with all of the science and medicine and all these tools that we have. And that's what's happening. COVID-19 is increasingly becoming more of an outpatient illness. Not, not that it's not important that there's still not 300 to 400 people that are dying every day, but it's not the same threat that it once was because of all of the tools, because of the success of science and medicine. So what you've just spoken about is the current experience of uh, medical facilities, physicians in the United States, perhaps in the Western industrialized world. Is that true universally? Uh, how does it compare to what we're hearing about what's happening in China right now? Uh, we can't know everything about what's happening there, but the, the stories are there's this new outbreak. And so would you say this pandemic is over everywhere or uh, just in, in the West? We're not hearing about hospitals beleaguered anywhere in the country, and deaths are down in most parts of, of the world. Uh, China is a little bit of an exception, which I'll get to in a second. So I do think that most of the Western world and even parts of Asia and Africa have, have kind of exited that acute phase of the pandemic. There's still work to be done there. There's still low vaccination rates in some parts of the, of the world, but we're not hearing about COVID being that same societal problem that it once was. And I think some of that might have happened because lots of people got infected naturally and didn't have access to the vaccine. But for whatever whatever the means, I think you're seeing transition to endemicity everywhere. China is very different because uh, China has adhered to a zero COVID approach where all case. And what's happened there is yes, they've got high vaccination rates. Some people think vaccination rates are high. But they're in nineties, um, but that vaccination rate is not equal. So we know that COVID-19 treats people differently based on their age and risk factors. In China, even though they've used kind of inferior vaccines that are probably, that are not the Western vaccines from Moderna, from Pfizer, from J&J, &J, from AstraZeneca, from Novavax, they still protect against severe disease and hospitalization to some extent. However, their high-risk population, people above the age of 60, people above the age of 80, have very low vaccination rates. And they've basically squandered two and a half years of not vaccinating that population, of not building ICU capacity, and of not using better vaccines. So they're in a situation where they still probably will see increasing rates of deaths and hospitalizations, 
especially ages variants, which aren't as amenable to the zero, no, no COVID variant is really amenable to zero COVID, but the new variants are clearly not. They're just too contagious uh, to, to be able to even be stopped. It's like uh, I've heard it um, analogized to trying to stop the wind. You cannot do it. So I do think that they do, they, they do face a really dire prospect because of their own poor policy choices that they will likely see deaths in hospitals uh, under stress because they failed to actually do that taming of the virus that many other countries did by protecting high-risk populations with vaccines, with antivirals, things that are not there, uh, mostly because of stubborn political reasons in, in China. So we're soon going to talk about some uh, approaches that are uh, critical of the one that you're now articulating that uh, seem to even favor the zero COVID approach that China is taking. But uh, before we do that, I just want to ask about leaving aside uh, those critics, how many people in your profession would you say are in agreement with your assessment of the situation? Is this a, is this a widespread view now among physicians and other medical professionals? Uh, what about policymakers? I do think it's more widespread than I thought it would be. I, th I thought that the piece would get a lot more negative attention on me, but it, it actually didn't. And many people seem to express agreement. They might not have used the exact words or the, or the language I use, but I think most people have moved on from COVID-19, even in my field, even though you might see some, what I would call virtue signaling in, in certain articles about what people should and shouldn't do. Uh, so I would say that the, the majority, especially of practicing infectious disease physicians, uh, likely are in somewhat agreement, but there are people, maybe some of the thought leaders and some of the public who, who aren't quite on board with this idea because there are still 300 to 400 deaths occurring every day because they're that, um, even with the vaccines, even with Paxlovid, are still going for serious disease from COVID. Um, those who, those are the people who comprise those 300 to 400 deaths that occur every day in the United States. And because of that, that group, which I think will always exist, uh, it, it's it, it's been something that they have had to be thinking that you can truly move on from the pandemic until those people are taken care of. And I don't know that we actually have a way to take care of those people. Just like there's always going to be, you know, 20, 30,000 deaths from influenza every year in high-risk populations. I, I think we're getting close to that baseline. It's not that we don't work to get better tools for them, but I think that you can't necessarily base your whole idea of where we are in this pandemic on this select group of, of immunocompromised, which exists for every disease. Yes, I want to dig more into that normative uh, framework of yours that you've, you've just started to touch on, uh, especially insofar as it's going to contrast with the alternative thought leaders we were just mentioning. But to do that, I want to take a step back and ask a more general question. Whether, whether we're in a pandemic or not, the fact of infectious disease is something we definitely will have to take into account when we're thinking about how we decide to interact with other people. We need some kind of ethical framework for making decisions about that. And, and I'd like to hear more about the, the ethical framework that you draw on when you are thinking about the fact of infectious disease. In particular, uh, what view of the value of health, what view of the value of social interaction do you, do you assume and draw on when you're advising patients about how to make these kinds of decisions in the face of various infectious threats? I even take a step back farther and I think about 
our ancestors who decided not to be nomads anymore and to start living in villages and cities. When that happened, um, they don't call that, you know, the age of agriculture is also call, called the age of pestilence because that's kind of built in that when people socially interact, infectious diseases are going to spread, especially respiratory viruses that spread very easily when people talk, laugh, cough, sneeze, whatever it may be, that becomes kind of built in to the, the trade-off that people make all the time to live in cities, to live amongst other people, because the benefits of, uh, of the knowledge, the cooperation, the technology, all of that, the, the benefits you have to live amongst other humans versus living on a desert island or living in the woods somewhere uh, are enormous. And that's a trade-off that most people make. So I tell people, you know, when you are interacting with other individuals, you have to assume that there's going to be some level of respiratory virus transmission risk, some level of GI uh, virus risk. And that's kind of baked into your, it's almost implicit consent when you're, when you're out and about that, that there are, you're going to come into contact with other people's germs. Obviously, there are certain germs that kind of fall across that threshold that you don't want to be, you, you, shouldn't, you, you, know, you shouldn't be infected with uh, when you're interacting with other individuals. And I think in general, there's etiquette issues about you know, not being around people when you're sick or wearing a mask around people when you're sick or doing it outdoors. But, but you can't avoid these respiratory viruses. They're part of kind of the human condition until we develop new technologies, better vaccines to be able to deal with them. So what I tell people is it's not one size fits all. You've got to, what activity you're doing. Is it Thanksgiving dinner? Is it Christmas? Is it a birthday party? Is it some, whatever it may be? And think, how important is that to you? Know that there's this non-zero risk of COVID and other respiratory viruses that you're not going to be able to get it to zero. And based on your individual risk tolerance and your individual risk factors for severe disease, you've got to decide, do I ask people to take a home test? Should I wear a mask? Do I go outdoors? Do I open a window? And I give people kind of a toolkit to navigate a world in which infectious disease risks are present. Just like, for example, on the other extreme is like when someone comes to me and they're going travel and they say, what do I need to do? And I was like, okay, well, what, I think that there's a malaria risk here. There's a yellow fever risk here. There's traveler's diarrhea risk. And I give them tools on how to navigate that world. I think that's the role of an infectious disease doctor is to help people think through these types of risks that are every day based on their own risk tolerance and recognize it's not one, it's not one size fits all. It's not something I can, that I want to dictate to people or that public dictate to people. I think it's much better to give them guidance and tools to reduce harm from infectious diseases and instead of kind of an abstinence-only approach saying you can't do anything because it's Amish, we lost a little bit of the last thing you said because of some internet choppiness. Could you, could you repeat your point about the uh, rejection of the abstinence-only approach? What I try to do is tell people not to abstain from these activities, but I give them a toolkit to kind of navigate them. It's a concept called harm reduction. And I don't think that it's correct to say, never do this until the risk is zero, because the risk will never be zero for certain infectious diseases. We live on a planet that is dominated by microorganisms. Great, got it that time, good. So the the approach you've just been uh, outlining this, uh, this approach that rejects the one size fit all approach. Obviously, there's a lot of stress on individual risk tolerance. It's a, it's a very individualistic approach. But when we hear uh, commentators talking about infectious disease, it's often framed as a, a public health question. We often hear a lot of facts about population level uh, population level facts about uh, degree of infectiousness, for example, whether or not a given population has herd immunity. 
but obviously it's only individuals who make decisions of the kind that you're talking about. So to what extent do you think about facts about populations as a whole uh, when you are recommending one kind of decision or another or giving guidance for making decisions to individuals? So the whole world of infectious disease is very tied up into populations because many infectious diseases are communicable. They spread in populations and you have to have a certain number in a population in order for diseases to spread, as I mentioned earlier. So these are in my specialty versus in cardiology, for example, or, or any other specialty medicine, I think only in infectious disease because we're dealing with communicable diseases. So it has to play a role in your thinking in terms of how so, I mean, the simplest thing, it's if you're going to a very crowded, congregated place, you can assume that there's going to be an infectious disease risk versus going to interact with one or two people. Or, and it also is the fact that if somebody is sick with a contagious disease, I will advise them, you should not be around other people because you are contagious until X day or until this happens. I do think about the ability of these diseases on the population. I'm advising people on how to, how to navigate the risks. But I think it's what had happening is, is that a lot of people will then take this, I think, valid approach and turn it into kind of a collective duty approach where any individual consideration is completely obliterated by the collective decision. And I don't think that that's true. I think they should be integrated. And I think there's important aspects to thinking about population health, but it shouldn't completely erase the fact that you're dealing with individuals and individual risk, uh, risk decisions. So one of the things that you've stressed uh, both just now and also in the in the Aereo article is that because the fact of living in society entails a certain base level risk for uh, exposure, that you can never get it to zero risk, that you're implicitly consenting to that risk insofar as you decide to live in society. But now, what would you say to those who who say that if they're if we're dealing with say a, a immunocompromised patient, someone who's highly vulnerable, high risk, and who in many cases just can't afford the kind of base rate level of risk, what are you saying about them? What what does your approach have to offer them as as guidance? They they obviously have to live in society, but the the risks are much greater for them. So how how do you recommend they deal with that? They have to be much more cautious. And that's always been the case pre-COVID, for example. I've taken care of you know countless HIV patients, countless patients that have had liver transplants, lung transplants, stem cell transplants, where we tell them all the time that a common cold is not a common cold to you. You have to be very careful. You should not be around sick people and you should be much more uh, cautious when you're in crowded congregated areas. You should think about wearing a mask at a lower threshold. You should make sure you're up to date with your vaccines and have a low threshold to call your doctor with even the minimal symptoms. It's how we dealt with immunocompromised individuals during respiratory virus season. There's nothing different about it other than COVID is a new threat there. It's the same principle that we apply. And it is, it's, that there are people that are going to be at higher risk for these respiratory viruses because of their immune compromised status and to get better tools to protect them, better monoclonal antibodies, antivirals, vaccines, all of that is important. Uh, but what it still boils down to individual risk calculation that they have to make. It's just that the stakes are higher for them. 
And thankfully, we do have tools to make it easier for them to, to navigate it, but we can't eliminate the risk and make it completely zero. And that's always been the case, that we have to be much more cautious when we're advising immunocompromised. Their risk is much greater than the average healthy person. Okay, so let's, I, I want to move on now to talking about that alternative way of thinking about it that uh, we've alluded to a few times now, the zero, the COVID zero approach. And we obviously see something like that approach being practiced in China right now. Well, I think we'll come back to China, but what's a little bit more surprising, especially given the more or less consensus view that you just mentioned in, uh, in infectious disease medicine is that there are still prominent voices in the West who are advocating something like COVID zero approach. And, and I wanted to ask you about who these people are and what kinds of reasons they give. So who are they, who, what are they saying? And, and do they really advocate literal COVID zero or are they simply advocating uh, some threshold that's much, much lower than what you think we can afford? So these tend to be certain public health professors that are pro that are prominent, certain journalists that are very prominent, and they often write in the Atlantic, for example. They're active on Twitter. I don't necessarily want to name names, but I do in my in my my piece. And they not necessarily, I would say, mainstream advocate. You know, it's important to not I'm not trying to uh, strongly argue. Talk about is that, for example. Uh, that the immunocompromised are left hanging, that everybody's back to their life, but not the immunocompromised, and that we should, for example, continue to have mask mandates or, or, or continue to have um, certain requirements in place by governments in order to protect those individuals in perpetuity. I think that's what I think um, where I draw this this uh, distinction from them, is that they think that it's for collective responsibility that we're in this together. and. Uh, because there are certain uh, um, uh, those of us amongst the collective that have that are not treated equally by this virus, that they that the virus is much more harsh on them, that we all should be kind of held to that same standard. That's that's the part that I object to, and they often denigrate the achievements of the vaccines, the boosters, the the monoclonal antibodies, the home tests, the antivirals, because it's not reducing the risk to zero. And I think that it is that same fantasy world of, of COVID zero that they somehow want to turn the clock back to 2019 and don't understand the biology of this virus that's with us forever, that there are always going to be a baseline number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths from COVID, just like there are for other respiratory viruses. And I think that they're, they're very vociferous and, and they can be very um, nasty, I would say, on, on social media. But increasingly, I think that they're what I think is that they've got a philosophically consistent position. They they kind of claim the moral authority on this thing that is immoral. It, this is a moral imperative that we need to do this. And, and I actually think it's wrong, but I think that many people cannot argue with them because they take it to that moral level. And that's what my paper was trying to do, was to really bring it back to that, to that level, but with a different individualism-based morality versus the way they were thinking of this kind of beauty. So you mentioned that they advocate some kind of government interventions on behalf of the vulnerable. You mentioned mask mandates in particular. Do any of them go as far as saying we should be doing what they're doing in China right now? 
No, I don't think any of them do at this point. They may have at earlier times. They tended to be the individuals who were very in favor of keeping schools closed or on remote learning, despite the long-term consequences of that. They were they were individuals that were very um, probably pro-government vaccine mandates. Uh, so they tended to be much more on the uh, on the paternalistic side of public health um, and and much more reticent to have any kind of opening up earlier on. I think at this point, they're not, nobody, nobody um, advocates what China is doing except for, uh, except for China and maybe possibly North Korea. I think it's not, uh, that's, that's clearly seen by everybody, thankfully, as an untenable position and not realistic. Do you have any sense of what they would say in defense of taking exception with what China is doing, given the other things they've, they've called for? How would they, how would they, uh, what reasons would they give for objecting to what's happening now? Most of them would probably come at it from a human rights perspective, from a state surveillance perspective, from the fact that buildings are burning because firefighters cannot get in into them because of COVID restrictions, that women are dying in childbirth because they don't have an active, co they don't have an up-to-date COVID test. I think they would look at some of the horrific uh, examples of how China's handled this as, as kind of beyond the pale. And the fact that China did squander, I think everybody recognizes that China squandered two and a half years by not using uh, more potent vaccines and vaccinating their elderly population. So I think that they would say that what China needs to do at this point is to start using Western vaccines and vaccinate their high-risk population as quickly as possible and, and remove sort of this authoritarian approach. And it, and it may be you know, that a lot of these people are on the left, and this is clearly the, the the crackdowns on the on the protests, the way that China, the, the authoritarian government, is anathema to them in this situation. And I think that's probably more what uh, what would that, that that plays a major role in probably that side's opposition um, to China. And many of them might give credit to China earlier on, just like they gave credit to New Zealand and Australia earlier on, who had in Singapore who had COVID zero type policies that um, disappeared once we had tools, once the tools were available in those countries. So you, you emphasized a few moments ago that the reason they adopt this COVID zero approach to whatever degree of consistency is that you, you suggested that they are more consistent There's with a certain moral idea, uh, a moral idea I assume you don't agree with, but uh, how would you summarize what that idea is? What's what's the ethical idea at the root of this uh, this uh, deference to the vulnerable that is at work in the COVID zero approach? I think it's egalitarianism. I think it's it's very clear that's what's happening. That the the fact that the virus treats people differently is not something they like, um, and uh, that's something that they're trying to equalize by pulling people back to that to, to uh, at the same level. So I think it's really about uh, egalitarianism because some people uh, are have risk factors, some people do not have risk factors for severe disease. And that disparity, which exists for all infectious diseases, in fact, for all health conditions, is something that they that they can't abide by. And in order to in, in, in not not trying to they're not trying to adapt to it or to recognize it, but actually to try to erase it by um, by kind of holding or keeping everybody at one standard that doesn't actually apply to all people. I think we should we should pause perhaps and just clarify what exactly you mean here by egalitarianism. I mean, it sounds like it's a it's a view that you're objecting to, but 
someone could say somewhat reasonably, uh, how can you how can you object to egalitarianism? Don't you believe in equal rights? What are you in favor of discrimination or something like that? Uh, State-sponsored discrimination. So, uh, what what precisely do you mean by egalitarianism and and the kind that you're opposing that you think this COVID zero is is relying on? What I oppose is the idea that you somehow evade the fact that that this virus is very different for very different for other people, and that each person has to kind of individually navigate that based on their risk factors. And this isn't a role. There's no role to try and keep to the strictest standard of safety for everybody when it may not apply to them or when you're forcing them to that strictest level of safety. I think it's important that people, that this isn't about ignoring the immunocompromise or neglecting what medical needs they may have and the fact that they have a higher risk, but it's about understanding that that's, that's kind of the state of nature, that's the state of affairs here. And whatever they're doing is actually going to make things worse because what they do is if you hold everybody back to that standard, society doesn't progress through this pandemic and you're actually penalizing people for not having a risk factor for severe disease, for not being at, at, at risk for hospitalization for COVID. And I don't think that that that, that to me is, is kind of horrific because each person is going to be treated differently from this virus and you can't have a one-size-fits-all policy and you certainly can't do it by force and you certainly shouldn't be shaming people who for example have moved on with their life because they're because they're at lower risk for COVID or they've decided that COVID is not a risk that, a risk that they can now navigate that's what I'm, I'm really objecting to and then to and it's really the moral language they use to say that this is immoral that we're doing this and I, I don't think that that uh, that's fair I think it's unjust and and that's what I've what I've objected to. And I think it also just erases the fact that we've made tremendous progress for a disease that wasn't even known to humans before 2019. So it, it sounds like what you're saying about egalitarianism, and correct me if I'm wrong, I just want to get clear on the position here, is that there's a there's a big difference between, say, the advocacy of uh, uh, political equality, where you say all people should have the same rights. To life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness—that's uh, the idea that whoever you are, you deserve that same sphere of protection for your actions. That's one view. But then, egalitarianism—the view that you're attacking—is not about. It's not about political equality. It's about, in effect, metaphysical equality. It's saying everybody ought to be metaphysically equal in their powers and their capacities and their vulnerabilities. And as long as they're not, there's something unfair. And it sounds like what you're saying is that there's just something incoherent and impossible and therefore irrational about this, this egalitarian view because, because people simply are not metaphysically equal, that they do face different vulnerabilities, they have different strengths and weaknesses. And that's a fact that simply can't be eradicated. And so given that it's a fact, we have to learn to deal with it. Is that, a, is that an accurate summary of what you're getting at? Right. This is not about political equality or equality under the law. It, this has nothing to do with that. This is about how the how this virus, particularly, or how health threats impact people, is not equal. Just just like many other aspects of life are not. They don't impact people equally. It's not a political or uh, a government issue. This is about um, what our goals are with this with this and other infectious diseases. So related to that, uh, understanding what this egalitarian idea is that you're that you're targeting, there's a point 
in your area article where you say the following, and I'm quoting you here, you say, we cannot place ourselves behind some artificial veil of ignorance as if we could not know what our individual risks from COVID might be and myopically choose a society that's laser focused on what is best for the most vulnerable while ignoring many other uh, relevant factors. So I think I know what you're getting at there, but I, I wonder if you would bring out for our audience a little more about what, what this veil of ignorance uh, idea refers to and uh, what aspect of the egalitarian philosophy it is you're targeting there. So I'm using that term from, from John Rawls, where he thinks about or discusses a society where you don't know where you're going to stand in it. You don't know what your abilities are going to be, what, what your aptitudes are, and you construct a society where you don't know that, so you, you construct it based on where the worst off have the most chance to succeed. And I think that kind of idea is very wrong when it comes to, when it comes to any type of application of it, but particularly in this one, which I'm focused on, is that you can't ignore the fact that, that certain people have risk factors for severe disease, certain people do not have risk factors for severe disease, and you can't construct a society that's based on the strictest sense of safety on the most immunocompromised without actually wrecking that entire society. Uh, because it, it's it's not the, the proper standard to think about what is the role of public health and in infectious disease uh, to, to make it kind of ratchet it to, the, to that low standard. It's important to account for that those individuals when you're thinking about public health policies, but you can't make that the standard for when you say it's okay to do such and such or, or make recommendations for the general public that are not based on individual risk factors, but based on the, the strictest standard of safety that you would apply to a person whose immune system doesn't function. Uh, you can't take that standard and you can't construct a society based on that when most people don't have that. And other people that don't have that, that have a, a normally functioning immune system, for example, or don't have risk factors for severe disease, they can't, they're, they're not going to be able to actually live their lives if they're held to that standard. I mean, I think it's worth maybe even expanding a little bit more on just what this Rawlsian idea is that you mentioned it just to just to get into the mindset of the people who advocate it. So Rawls famously in his uh, 1972 book, The Theory, A Theory of Justice, which is enormously influential work of political philosophy in the 20th century and continues to have many adherents today, argues, if you want to know what a just society looks like. Here's a kind of thought experiment for figuring it out. Imagine that you don't know who you are. Imagine that you don't know uh, what level of intelligence you have, that you don't know what position in society you're going to be born into. You don't know your race. You don't know your class. You don't know your sex. So for all you know, you might be uh, born into the worst off uh, level of uh, society, the most disadvantaged. And his idea is put yourself behind this veil of ignorance, pretending like you don't know any of these things about you, and then try to make a decision for what kind of society you would like to live in. And his idea is you would want a society which, in, in which whatever uh, inequalities are ineradicable are made to work for the sake of the least well-off. Because for all you know, you might be one of those least well-off people. And so you would want the, the better advantaged people to sacrifice for you. So it's this, it's this thought experiment that uh, gives this extreme benefit of the doubt to your own situation. And one of the things you've been stressing throughout, I think rightly, is that 
there's a really important sense in which you simply cannot uh, use that standard. So you're not just saying that you should not, you're saying it's, it's impossible, both because these inequalities, both in ability and risk are ineradicable, but even you can't put yourself into that situation where you forget everything about who you are uh, and still make some kind of uh, rational choice. For viewers who are interested, this is a, a philosophic viewpoint that Ayn Rand herself commented on in an article uh, she called an untitled letter. She was writing about Rawls's philosophy and even about his veil of ignorance idea. And she says, I submit it is impossible for men to make any choice on the basis of ignorance, using ignorance as a criterion. If men do not know their own identities, they will not be able to grasp such things as principles to live by, alternatives of what is a good, or, or what is a good, bad, or worst possible outcome. So it seems like there are all kinds of just impossibilities that are, that are dictated by this egalitarian approach, both about uh, the attempt to eliminate risk entirely, the attempt to, uh, and the attempt to pretend like we don't know that there are these differences in ability and strengths and, and capacities and vulnerabilities. So one question to connect this discussion back to one of the things we started with and to what's in the news right now, which is, which is China. There's a sense in which it seems like what's motivating them is the same COVID zero approach, but we've talked about the ideas at work in the Western mind when it comes to advocating something like this. Do you have uh, some sense of whether it's the same kind of ideas that are motivating the Chinese or is it, is it, is it a mix of different things? It's likely a mix of different things. Early on, China believed that this was going to be a virus that they could eradicate. And from a biological perspective, that's not possible. When you have an efficiently spreading respiratory virus with an animal host, that's not an eradicable virus. And they sort of got away with it, or people gave them the benefit of the doubt when there weren't vaccines, when there weren't antivirals, because there were no tools to deal with it. And China was able to do this in the face of less contagious variants. But what they, but so, so you can kind of grant that premise that that somewhat kept their, that kept their deaths down, like, and they were able to resume their lives earlier than many other countries where there was a lot more spread of the virus going on. But what happened is in that time, they kind of stuck to that policy and assumed that their vaccines would provide protection to a level that they don't. And they thought that their population would get more vaccinated. They made major mistakes. For example, the vaccine wasn't available to people above the age of 60 in China, um, which is still kind of caused the problem with vaccine uptake in, in senior citizens in China. So they, they really had bad policy that they didn't couple to their initial zero COVID approach, which is very different than, as I said, New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, which are other COVID zero countries that quickly transitioned out once tools were made. But what's happened is that the head of state there in China has made has staked this kind of political fortune on this, that this is the best way to do it, that the Chinese way to deal with COVID is the superior way to do it. And now I think they're much more wedded to this, not from any kind of egalitarianism or anything, anything that we're seeing you know, in the United States with certain, certain groups, but much more based on the fact that this is considered essential to their political survival, that if they now pivot from this, that is an admission that their policy is not the best policy and that their vaccines are not the best vaccines. That, that I think is probably thought of as an existential risk 
to the Chinese Communist Party, at least from my reading of this and my discussions with people uh, that are involved in this. So I think now this is not really being done for any kind of health reason. This is a, a political issue in China, and it will be handled like a political issue. That's an interesting contrast, uh, interesting contrasting motivations that lead to the same overall approach. And it, I think it'll be interesting to watch how it unfolds, especially in thinking about uh, how whether th those differences in motivation are all that different. That is, what are some of the motives behind why people adopt the egalitarian outlook in the first place? Is it a, is it a kind of desperation of their own, uh, perhaps for political reasons? Obviously, there are some differences, but I think we're going to have to we're going to have to watch and see how that unfolds. Um, I, I I did want to ask one more question about uh, another alternative ethical viewpoint that's out there that intersects with the issue of infectious disease. Now, I should I should say this is an approach that is not being used to advocate for anything like COVID zero. If anything, some of its advocates have been against uh, some of the more draconian lockdowns, but for very different reasons than the kind that uh, you've been articulating. And this is the, the viewpoint that's called effective altruism, the, especially the long-termist uh, view of effective altruism. And it's a, it's a philosophy we've commented on recently. We, we reviewed a book by William McCaskill uh, that advocated this viewpoint. And it's been in the news quite a lot recently because uh, recently there was a collapse of a major cryptocurrency firm, FTX, which is led by Sam Bankman-Fried, who was a major advocate of effective altruism. And as it turns out, uh, one of the causes that he gave a lot of money to was uh, some kind of pandemic preparedness, but for very different reasons than the ones that you've been uh, urging the need for. So, uh, Imish, would you share with us a little bit, since this is since this is in the news and it's a it's another alternate uh, it's another ethical viewpoint that uh, has implications for thinking about infectious disease. What's your take on what the effective altruists have said? about COVID, about pandemics generally, and, and what kind of impact do you think they've had on the, on the field and for what kind of reasons? The Center for Health Security is funded by the Open Philanthropy Project, which is an effective altruism organization, Facebook. So we, I, I am funded by, by that group uh, uh, indirectly for, for the work that I do at the Center for Health Security. What I think overall is that the effective altruism community, when they look at pandemic preparedness, they're much more focused on existential risks, risks to the human civilization as such. Could an infectious disease wipe out the human civilization? So a lot of their work and what they fund is, is really focused on the extreme end of pandemic preparedness, not COVID-19, not 2009 H1N1, not 1918, um, because all of those are horrendous. Those all had major death tolls, uh, with the exception of 2009 H1N1, but they don't necessarily rise to an existential risk. So what you see is they're kind of creating a false alternative, either that, that these lesser public health crises are not as attractive or not as sexy to them in, in order to, to kind of in, the, in their end game of trying to prevent existential risk. And many of the things that would improve our ability to respond to pandemics and infectious disease emergencies are very kind of things at the local public health level in terms of uh, in terms of prioritization uh, of staffing there and technology and just use just basic stuff that we don't do very well 
that's less interesting to them. So I think what's what what's, what's created is kind of this divide is that you either don't focus on infectious disease at all, or when you're focusing on it, it has to be at the existential risk level, which I think is somewhat far-fetched, but that, that's kind of where, where we stand. And, you know, they obviously have, a, um, they, they've been funding a lot of research here, and some of it does integrate. Some of that, the work that we do on existential risk does influence work on pandemic threats, but it's not always married together, because when you're focused on extreme events like that, what we would call global catastrophic biologic risks, it kind of, uh, distracts away from the everyday things that we need to get better at because when we saw with COVID-19 was not because what we saw happen with COVID-19, the failures that happened weren't because we weren't focused on existential risk. It was basic things that needed to be fixed that just weren't fixed, like a legal framework for dealing with infectious disease emergencies or testing, things that are that were, were very rank and file. That I think would have made a, a major difference in our resiliency to COVID-19 rather than you know, preparing for an Andromeda strain. So it strikes me that there are actually three different overall approaches that we, we've been talking about today. Uh, one is the COVID zero approach, which says we need to regulate society and at the very least encourage significant individual sacrifice for the sake of the high risk, for the sake of the vulnerable. And you're rejecting that approach. And someone who hears that you're rejecting that approach might think, well, this guy who's an individualist who says everybody needs to assess their own individual risk, well, he just doesn't really even care about infectious disease, about the threat posed to uh, human civilization by, uh, by infectious diseases and pandemics. And what's interesting to, uh, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring up the effective altruist approach, which is the second approach, is, well, they're concerned with some kind of pandemics, but they're the ones that they think will end civilization. And as such, they only focus on the very distant future and on the threat of human extinction as such. But as a result, they don't actually care about the, the pandemics that are actually affecting real people in the world today. Uh, just because they don't think it's going to cause us to go extinct and you're taking with exception with them as well and saying in fact that approach is not caring enough about the threats posed by uh, pandemic pandemics and infectious disease would you say that's an accurate uh, uh, portrayal of the the different options here yeah i think that that captures it pretty well good so we've gotten a few questions i think that's all the questions that i wanted to ask you uh, one or two questions that I, I may want to ask you about, and then I think we should go to Clubhouse. So first of all, just there's a couple of people who've donated super chat questions over the course of this uh, uh, conversation. I want to thank you for that. Uh, there's there's one question here. I won't read it word for word, but it, it amounts to a question about whether you have changed your tune uh, on the question of natural immunity. You, you did mention natural immunity a few times uh, over the course of our conversation. Uh, now, there are people, I think, who were hanging their hat entirely on, on that, uh, that uh, way of dealing with the pandemic. Is, is that what you're now saying or have you not changed your tune? No, I haven't changed my tune. I've always said natural, it, this again is another false alternative. It's not, not natural immunity is zero and it's not that it's everything. Natural immunity from infection does provide your protection, 
particularly against serious illness, hospitalization, and death in lower risk populations. In high risk populations, I don't think it's sufficient. I think the best type of immunity, what we've seen from data uh, that's accumulated is what's called hybrid immunity, vaccination plus infection in some order. That seems to be the most, those seem to be the most immune individuals. I've never thought that natural immunity should be ignored. And I think it's a mistake the way that the government handled that. I think the data showed that probably people that had an infection, one single dose of the two dose vaccines was sufficient to top off that immunity. And that's what I've advocated from the very beginning that, that those individuals should have at least gotten one dose. And it's especially true in the, with the advent of immune evasive variants, starting with the beta variant back in South Africa, that natural immunity wasn't enough. So I think it, it's not nothing. And I think it, it, it synergizes with immunity from vaccination. And that's been my position. And I do think that uh, a naturally immune person or someone who was infected who got a single dose of a vaccine of the two dose formulations should have been considered uh, fully, uh, fully vaccinated or equivalently vaccinated. And I advocated for that from the very beginning. And then let me ask a follow-up question that this line of thinking suggested to me, which is we are now being told that we're going to have to get, if we want to maintain uh, roughly adequate immunity against COVID, that we're going to need to get a booster every year. Question for you, do you think that that is going to be necessary, uh, especially if we've, say, already had COVID? And what are the prospects for a, uh, a the, I can't remember the name for it, but the, the different kind of vaccine that uh, fully inoculates you where you don't have to get boosters? What are the technological prospects for that right now? So when it's come to boosters, I, universal vaccine, I think you mean, or you mean sterilizing, but we'll get to that. Sterilizing. In a second. Um, yeah. So um, when it comes to boosters, I've always been someone who's favored targeted boosters. I think that the, the current first generation vaccines for COVID are really good at protecting against serious illness, hospitalization, and death. So boosters really are beneficial to those individuals that are at risk for severe disease. So that's the elderly people with comorbid conditions. I've always been someone who's said boosters should be targeted. I don't think that this should be a necessity for every person to be getting a booster every year to transiently protect against mild disease. So I think we need a better booster policy, uh, but it's not something I think we're going to see. However, I think less enforcement of boosters and being up to date is, is that, that, that enforcement of it is not really going to be uh, anything. But I do think we need a targeted booster approach. And I think it's too early to say how frequently people need to be boosted. Uh, but again, if you're a high risk, I think you benefit from boosters. Low risk, I, I don't think uh, that, you, that you benefit much from boosters. Uh, a sterilizing vaccine, I think we're still some, some ways off. What, well, what there are multiple new second generation vaccines uh, that are in in clinical trials, actually China has one, an inhaled vaccine, India has a nasal vaccine. There are several of those in trials in the United States. They may provide more immunity in your nose, which could be more sterilizing. There are also vaccines in clinical trials that are called universal, which protect against all variants or all coronaviruses. Uh, the, the military, Walter Reed has one, one that's pretty far along, uh, the, the US Army. So I think we will see a lot of innovation in the space of COVID-19 vaccines. And these first generation vaccines that have done tremendous good in terms of saving millions and millions of lives, I think will eventually be supplanted by, by newer technologies. And I think that's that's something to, to look forward to, that just because we're out of the acute phase of this pandemic doesn't mean that all research and science on COVID is going to stop. Indeed, it's probably going to uh, continue for, for decades to get better, better treatments, better vaccines, and the like.
I'm reminded, and I didn't include this in the resources at the end, so we should make sure that we put this still in the program notes, that you gave a really fascinating talk on the success of the vaccines at this past summer's Ocon, and uh, also commented on some of the bad thinking that goes into uh, the critics of the vaccine. So we'll make sure that we link to that in the notes so that people can also see what you've had to say about that. I think that wraps up all the questions that I wanted to ask. Uh, so what I think the next thing to say should be, if you have more questions, if you'd like to ask Dr. Adalja any of these questions directly, the next best thing to do is to join us on Clubhouse, which we're going to be going to right after this show. If uh, you've not done this before, download the Clubhouse app on Android or iOS, search for the Ayn Rand Club. And uh, I believe we're actually broadcasting this current conversation live there already. So we'll just be joining that same stream as soon as we're done here. Uh, in addition to that, I also want to mention a, at least one resource that I'd like to direct everyone to for learning more about the Ayn Rand Institute's position on uh, the subject of COVID and how society and how our government should deal with it. And this is Ankar Gatte's essay, which uh, we published uh, at the height of the pandemic, a pro-freedom approach to infectious disease. You can read that if you go to bit.ly slash freedom hyphen infectious. This uh, is our statement of the positive legal uh, procedures that a government should adopt when dealing with uh, widespread infectious disease, uh, but also a lot of commentary on the ones that they shouldn't, including what's wrong with the kind of lockdown approach that's been motivated by the, the COVID zero advocates until recently. Also like to let you know about next week's podcast. Uh, we will be returning next week I, on uh, Friday, I believe that that date may be subject to some change. Uh, this will be a conversation between uh, our own Agustina Vergara Sid and Nico Satirokopoulos on the current controversy about the World Cup in Qatar, uh, how authoritarian regimes exploit sports. I think a matter of some uh, moral significance, what's going on uh, with that match. Uh, if you enjoyed today's episode and you want to find out more about future episodes like this one, uh, please uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please uh, like us. Please comment on the, the YouTube page if you are watching the recording. Share the recording. This All of this helps optimize the algorithm so that more people will find out about the show. Same thing uh, is something you should do if you're watching on Facebook. And if you have questions or suggestions uh, for future episodes, future topics, uh, follow-up questions about material we talked about today, you can always send us an email uh, if you uh, write to newideal at einrand.org. Okay, so thanks very much for watching today. Thank you, Dr. Dolce, for your insight as usual on uh, this topic. Uh, and uh, we will we will talk with everyone soon on Clubhouse. Thank you. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.